All right. Good evening, everybody. Good to have you out for Bible school tonight. Uh, you can open up to Matthew chapter 7 as I give you a couple of announcements to get started tonight. Uh, we still, I think, we'll have a few other people joining us, so I'm not going to rush into the lesson. But I'm trying to be very gentle with my Bible so that I don't shake the screen so, so much. I mentioned last time, um, last week, that we were going to have a Galatians exam. However, I didn't have the exam typed up and, and printed up yet. That is now done, and it is in the Galatians folder on our Google Drive. So because of the lockdown and things being different, the same way we did the Romans exam, we are going to do the Galatians exam. I'm not even going to read you the questions because you're able to go on Google Drive, download the document, look at it, prepare just like you normally would, and we're working off of an honor-based system. So just to re-explain, I know I've mentioned this before, but you'll sit down, give yourself 10 minutes, closed book to write the exam, just like we would do in class. So we're gonna trust that you, that you stick to the same regiment uh, on your own. The, there's one other difference to this test. It is not due next week. Now on our calendar for Bible school, we were not scheduled to have classes next week, but that's not because of, of any decision on, on our part. This was something that the puck, um, they, it, it was on their part, they didn't have any space for us in the calendar to be in that room on next week, Wednesday. So we, when we put the schedule together, we didn't think that it would be possible. Now with the lockdown, obviously things are different. So we are going to have class next week, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. We're gonna, go, we're gonna take advantage of this opportunity and it'll, it'll really help me because I like this schedule a little better, not as difficult on my voice. And I think we all, I hope this is true. For the most of us, we have a little bit of extra time. It's not too difficult on our schedules to, to sit down and be part of the live stream. So next week, we are going to have class. I am giving you two weeks to write the Galatians exam. So not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after that. Forgive me, I don't have the number of the date uh, to, to give you. but So you have two weeks from tomorrow to send... The, the written exam to the church email, all right? So please, if you have any questions, feel free to ask me. You can contact me personally, or if you, if you can send an email or something to the church phone, or a, a church email address. All right, that's all I have for you announcements-wise. Let's come to Matthew 7 and verse number 1. Try to gently move a few things around here as best I can. Matthew 7 and verse 1, and... This is the final chapter for the Sermon on the Mount. If you guys would, um, just type hello or hi or something, amen, in the comment section. We had some work done in our house today for the internet connection because it's been uh, pretty poor. I've been using my phone data to, to um, do the live streams. So I'm using our Wi-Fi, but I'd like to know if if the chat section is work, working and if, the, if uh, there's still a good connection. 
usually about halfway through a, a sermon or a lesson, I stop getting all chats. Even though you're still sending them, I don't see them. And then after I finish, they all pop up um, as I try to close the event. So I'm sorry, guys, if you tried to send messages and I didn't respond. I see a few popping through now. Test good. Awesome. I appreciate that. All right, Matthew 7. And let me give you the outline for the chapter. This is the, the final chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know about you, I've enjoyed studying through this. Uh, you know, I've looked at it many, many times, but I've learned a lot through this uh, preparation time for this. And it's been a real blessing. We will probably speed up a little bit as we move through the rest of Matthew. But this chapter breaks down into five parts. Verses 1 to 6, proper judgment. Proper judgment. Verses 7 to 12, prayer promises. Prayer promises. Verses 13 and 14, path to life. Path to life. Verses 15 to 23, pernicious prophets. Pernicious prophets. Pernicious is like dangerous, um, but I'll show you that word later on. We're going to look at some verses with that word in it. And then the final part of the chapter, verses 24 to 29, powerful foundation. Powerful foundation. All right, so let's get into the chapter itself. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. This is a verse that a lot of people are familiar with, right? This verse gets quoted, but not completely. It's such a short verse, you would think that people could quote the entire thing, but unfortunately, we usually only hear the first two words of it. Judge not, and that's as far as people go. Um, Judge not that you be not judged. Jesus is giving a warning about judgment, and he's going to teach us in in the first few verses here how to do it properly. He's not forbidding uh, the, the act of judging someone else. He's actually speaking, as you can see in verse 5, to the hypocrite. And he says, if you're a hypocrite, then be aware of this. If you judge, you're going to get judged. Now, before we get into verse 2, can I do this? Can we pause just for a moment? I'd like to pray. i got a couple things on my heart, and then we'll continue on with the lesson. Father, thank you this evening. I, I just don't want to go through this lesson without asking for your help. Lord, um, I've been looking forward to this lesson all day, and I'm a bit excited and just jumped right into it. I certainly don't want to exclude you from what we're doing. Please help us tonight, God. Please meet with us. Speak to our hearts. And Lord, I want to especially pray for Brother Leon out there delivering the food packets tonight. God, he's still going, still driving, Lord, and he's getting tired. Please, God, be with him. Have your hand on him. Please, Lord, use him to, to be... To, to deliver the food and, and the gospel to so many people, over 500 people now. Please, God, help them. Help us. Open our eyes, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, verse 2. Jesus says, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So, Whatever measuring stick you use to judge everybody else, that's the same measuring stick that's going to be applied to you. Um, Hold your place here. Get James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And I want to show you a verse on judgment. Verse 13. 
James 2 and verse number 13. Now, as you find that, let me say, if you set a standard for other people and you expect them to live up to that standard, then you as well are going to be expected to live up to that standard. And I realize within the body of Christ, we have some people that drop the bar and their standards for living are are not as high as God's. And then you have some people that overshoot the mark. And they have so many standards and convictions and preferences, and they expect everybody to adapt to, to every little gray area that they have. And you almost get the idea that they feel like it's their calling to go around pointing out all the problems in the body of Christ. And they end up having a, a lot of judgment, but there's not a lot of mercy. So as I mentioned already, the passage does not forbid judgment, but it does tell us how to properly approach it. Look at James 2, verse 13. The Bible says, For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. So the idea is if you're going to judge others, fine, but don't forget about mercy while you do it. I find it interesting how everything in our All of our lessons in Bible school this year seem to line up really well. We have Galatians, we had Romans, now even what we're learning tonight in Matthew about judgment. This goes very well with what we studied in Galatians 6, verse 1. You might remember, Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So when you go to restore that brother, or you go to rebuke him for what he's done wrong, Take a moment, pause, think about yourself and say, man, if I was in that guy's shoes, this is how I would want somebody to approach me. So, coming back to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 3 now. Matthew 7 and verse 3. He says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Now, this is obviously an exaggeration. Right. This is a figure of speech we, we call hyperbole. That's the fancy word for it. But when you intentionally and, and go use, a, a, I want to say a gross exaggeration, but a ridiculous, a ridiculous exaggeration. And this is to have a beam in your eye. I mean, you'd be dead, right? So if it was a literal thing, the reason he's doing it is to make the point abundantly clear that if, and it's kind of when you, Think, stop and think about what's going on. A guy with a beam in his own eye, how would he be able to be looking in somebody else? He, he would have too many issues of his own, right? He wouldn't have time. He wouldn't have health. He wouldn't have strength to be searching for moats in other people's eyes. Now, a beam, you can understand, is just a big plank of wood in your eye. But a moat, that is the smallest part of something. In, in, some, in some older books, you can read about a moat of dust. Now think about that, a moat of dust. Dust is already pretty small, and now you can break down dust even smaller and get a moat of it. So it's one little particle. So this guy in verse 3, he is busy searching in his brother's eye for the moat, and he's got a beam in his own eye. Now imagine how much effort it takes to look for that small little particle in somebody else's eye. You really got to look closely. You got to investigate, take time, and it takes effort to dig deep enough to find that. Imagine if you took that time to search your own heart. Now, 
with a beam in your own eye, it shouldn't take too long to figure out what the problem is. You should be able to see that very clearly, but isn't it strange how sometimes we can see everybody else's faults and not our own? Verse 4, Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. So, it's a fairly obvious statement that he's making. No one's going to take you seriously if you are busy doing something wrong, living living ungodly, and then pointing the finger at others saying, why are you living ungodly? It's glaringly obvious that you're not living up to your own standards. I heard one preacher talk about it like this. I've tried to research the moat. Um, all I can find definitively is that it is the smallest particle of something. But I heard one preacher talk about it as a, a speck of sawdust. And that's an interesting thought. I'd love to know where he got that, or maybe he was just preaching. But if you have a beam, right, that's wood, that's made of wood, a speck of sawdust, that's the smallest part of that wood. So the same problem that you, you struggle with, and you struggle with it big time, that's what you see in other people. Now, I've, I've let that thought sink in with me, and I've tried to notice, what, what, is, it, what is it that I like... That, that stands out the most to me about other people's lives? What fault do I find the most with other people? And then I try to turn that around on me and say, now, I wonder if I'm so good at seeing that problem because I have the beam in my own eye. It's an interesting way about, uh, uh, to, to go about examining your own heart. Right? Because the big problem I have, I see it in little things, in little ways in everybody else's life. In any event, verse 5, Thou hypocrite. So there we see the audience. He's speaking to a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not allowed to judge. He has, nowhere, he has no leg to stand on. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. Now, now notice what he says. He doesn't say, Thou hypocrite, you should never judge anyone. He didn't say that. What he did say is, Before you judge someone, get the beam out of your own eye, and then... He says, shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Does he want you to help your brother with the mote? Yes. Yes. Remember this from chapter 5? The great things of the law, the, the least things of the law. We don't want to ignore that which is least. Now, we give everything as due emphasis, but even the mote, we want to help our brother with that. But I cannot help my brother. I cannot say anything that he will take seriously if I got a beam sticking out of my own eye, especially if it's the same exact problem. So fix your heart, fix your life as best as you can, then you're able to minister to others. That's the lesson that you would learn from these first five verses. You wouldn't walk away. If somebody reads the context, you don't walk away saying, never judge anyone heard too many preachers go down that path. They, they just do away with all judgment. And as soon as you do that, right, then anything goes. They're all grace and no truth. Guys, Jesus, when he came, it says he was full of grace and truth. There's a balance there. You can't just go around judge, 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 and being harsh and no grace, no mercy, right? There, there has to be a balance. You can't be all grace either. Jesus said it like this in another place, in John 7. Judge not according to appearance, but judge 
righteous judgment. We are commanded to judge, but we are commanded to do it rightly. All right, verse 6. Verse 6, he says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again, and rend you. Now, I don't know if your Bible has the paragraph markings in it. Mine, mine does. And verse 6 is its own paragraph. And I must admit, the thought of verse 6, it doesn't seem to flow naturally from verses 1 to 5. Even though in my outline, I've included it under the heading of proper judgment. And as I explained it, I think you'll see why. But it, it is linked later on in the chapter, in verse 15, we're going to start talking about false prophets. It is linked to that. So I can see why Jesus mentioned it in the sermon. But we go from talking about judgment, and then we're going to talk about prayer in just a moment. And right in the middle of that, we have this comment about what to do with that which is holy and what to do with your pearls. I'll tell you one way I've heard this explained that I don't agree with. I've heard it preached. People say, do not waste time preaching the gospel to people that don't want to hear it. Now, there's some practical truth to that. If this person is not paying attention, you might want to come back another day, right? Let the Lord work on their heart, prepare the ground a little bit. I, I get that. I get that. But the idea of only preaching the gospel to people who are hungry and serious and seeking it, guys, when Jesus gave the parable about the sower and the seed, right? Some of the seed falls on stony ground. Some of it falls by the wayside. You can't just preach to, to, to people that have already softened and prepared their hearts and have the good ground. The seed needs to go out everywhere. So the idea of, no, no, and I've heard Calvinists preach it like this, don't preach to the non-elect. But how do you know if they're not elect if you don't preach to them and see what they do with the gospel? So that's, that certainly won't work. Now, I don't think that's the idea that Jesus was trying to get across here about preaching the gospel to people. I, I don't think that's it. In verse 6, when you look at, at pearls and that which is holy, we read in some places that, and I'm thinking of a verse in Malachi. If you want to just turn a couple pages back, Malachi 3, I believe it is. Uh, yeah, Malachi 3, verse 17. God's speaking about people that fear Him. And he says, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. So these people that fear the Lord, I want to say converts because that's what I am driving at here, they are jewels in God's crown. In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, the Bible talks about believers as lively stones, uh, which... A pearl is a, a precious stone. A precious stone? Is it a stone? It comes out of an oyster. I don't know if we'd call that a stone, but it's a jewel at the least. All right, so that which is holy and this pearl, I believe what we're talking about are your converts. People that have repented. Now, when you go out and preach to somebody and then they want to give their heart to Christ, the last thing you want to do is then allow your converts to get mixed up with false prophets. I believe that's what Jesus is getting at here. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, 
Neither cast ye your pearls before swine. What are dogs? What are swine? Well, biblically, let me show you uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Philippians 3, verse 2. Paul says here, Beware of dogs. Now, he's not talking about the physical dogs out in your yard, right, that bark at the thief when he comes by. Beware of dogs. He's talking about false prophets, false preachers. You can see it in the context. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Concision is a word that they used back in the day for Judaizers. Now, you can see as the chapter goes on, Philippians 3, verse number uh, 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. In several of Paul's uh, epistles, he warns about these Judaizers and these false prophets, and he calls them dogs. When you read in Revelation, without our dogs, it's not... Listen, I do not think that dogs go to heaven, right? The, the ones out in your yard. I don't think they go to heaven. But in Revelation, when it says without our dogs, it doesn't, that, that's not saying that your dog is going to end up in the lake of fire. Dogs, as in false preachers, false prophets. Now, a dog, just like a swine, they're both unclean animals, they, according to the Old Testament Jewish diet. And I'll also point this out. For whatever reason, dog, you might remember this proverb, the dog returned to his vomit and the swine returns to uh, wallowing in her mire. So th the male, the male version of this false preacher is focused as, uh, at the dog. It's talked about as a dog. But then the female version of a false preacher, that's mentioned as a swine. Now I'll let you guys look up the verses for this later, but you'll actually find that in, in a handful of verses that where that's consistent, where the male is linked to the dog and the female to the pig. But in any event, Matthew 7 and verse 6, I believe there's a warning here. Do not compromise. Do not join forces and, and, tell, and allow your converts to sit under the preaching and be influenced by these false teachers and false preachers. Now, he says at the end of verse 6, lest they trample them under their feet, so trample your converts, and turn again and rend you. It's going to end up destroying you once you compromise and say, yeah, you know what? It's okay if you don't teach this and this and this and this right. But guys, I understand there might be some small disagreements that you can ignore and that they don't make any fundamental difference. I get that. Guys, there are some things that get preached in churches that you just simply cannot ignore. But that's kind of the, the mantra of our age. Don't rock the boat. Don't point out the differences. You, you, you have to eventually, even though you're going to look like the bad guy and people are going to, you know, they're not going to appreciate the fact that you're, they'll, they'll accuse you of causing the division. The real division is coming from the one who's teaching something wrong. You're just trying to point out where that mistake is being made. But we're going to talk more about false prophets later on in the chapter, so I'll, I'll say more about it later. Verse 7, we're going to talk about prayer promises. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. I'm sorry. So, 
he uses the pronoun, ask and it shall be given you. All right, what's it? Well, most people, again, they, they don't read the context. They just take verse 7. It's a wonderful verse, right? Along with verse 8. For everyone that asketh receiveth, he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. Wonderful. You take, you take those two verses by themselves and don't go through your Bible and look at the other verses that talk about prayer. If those are the only two verses you have, then what you would assume is whatever I ask for, I'm going to get. And once we read the entire context, I think you'll see that the it of verse 7, ask and it shall be given you, it is not always what you're asking for. But the promise that Jesus, I believe, is making here, your prayers will be answered. The Father is listening. And a sincere prayer is going to be answered. Right? It may not be answered the way you think. Now, I think this will be clear as we look at the illustration that Jesus used. In verse 9, it says, Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread... Will he give him a stone? No father would do that. No, no, no decent father, right? If your son is hungry and asks for bread, you will give him what? Well, you say, I'll give him bread. You, yes, you might. You might give him exactly what he requests. Or you might say, son, um, I don't think you need bread right now. You need broccoli. I think, I think you need a pork chop. I think you need something different. You are going to give your son what he needs, not necessarily what he asked for. When the son asks for bread, what does this tell the father? This tells the father, my son is hungry. So what, what should be going through the father's mind? I'm speaking as a human now. Then we start to think, well, how can I best help my son? Any decent dad will tell you, you have to put your foot down sometimes. You can't give your kids everything they ask for. That, that wouldn't, we shouldn't think that that's a good dad. In verse 10, he says, Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? It's the same principle. No, if he's, if he's hungry and wants some fish, I'll take his request into consideration, but I'm not just going to hand him what he, what he wants, but I'm never going to give him something that'll hurt him. See, if I give him a stone to chew on, that's going to hurt him. If he wants a fish and I, I trick him and give him a serpent, that's going to hurt him. Do you, do you see the, the promise that we have in prayer? When you go to pray, the Father will never respond in a way that is going to make your life worse than it needs to be. You might need to learn some lessons, and the Father may know that. And the Father may have a much bigger picture in mind when He, uh, when he begins to answer your prayers and work things out. But the promise we have here is we have a, a wonderful and loving Heavenly Father that pays attention when we pray and will react in a way that is best for us. Verse 7, If ye then, being evil... He says that, I, I picture Jesus kind of winking when he says that if you, you guys and you're... By nature you're depraved. If ye then, being evil, you guys, your, your fallen, sinful human men... And you can figure this out. You as fallen, depraved men wouldn't treat your children like that. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them 
that ask him. Say, okay, if I ask for good things, God will give them to me. That's not the promise. Your Father will give you the things that you need, not everything you ask for. Now, now let, me, let me give you a couple of the verses to kind of round out this explanation. Do you know what to pray for as you ought? Now, just take a moment. I, I wonder, this is a good chance to see if the comment section is working. Do any of you know the verse that answers that question? I wonder if somebody can type it in. I'll give you a couple seconds. There's a verse that gives us the answer to that. We have an infirmity, right? The Bible says we have an infirmity. We have a shortcoming. All of, human, all of humanity has the, the same shortcoming. We know not what to pray for as we ought, right? I'm going to turn to it. I'm going to see if somebody can type it in before I say it. The Bible says, likewise, I'm reading the verse now, the one that I'm asking about. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Now, it says the Spirit helps our infirmities. Please pick up on that. It says at the end of that verse, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, and then it goes on a couple of verses later. We know all things work together for good to them that love God. Right, somebody's popped in there with it. I'm reading in Romans 8, verse 26. We know not what to pray for as we ought. Now, when we go to pray, we ask for it. What's it? We pray for what we think we need. And then the Holy Spirit hears that and he begins to groan. And he says, oh, man, they just don't see the big picture. They don't have all the information they need to, to, um, to fully comprehend what's going on. So this Holy Spirit goes up to the Father and they have a divine conversation and, and a plan is made. And then the Holy Spirit comes down and begins to tell you what you need to know and give you whatever thing you need to bring you in line with the will of God. Now, turn to, to Luke. I want to show you a verse in Luke, chapter 11, verse 13. And this is the same passage about prayer, but notice how it's worded here. Luke 11 and verse 13. You can see the verses before it. Jesus is explaining these same prayer promises. Verse 13, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Now, in Matthew, He said He'll give good things. But then in Luke, it says He'll give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him. All right. Now, may I ask you a, a, a follow-up question to this? When you get down to pray... You don't just get down and say, God, please just fill me with the Spirit and that's it. Surely that's not the only thing you pray for. You can go to the Father and say, I need food, I need drink, I need uh, to pay my rent, I need a job. You can pray, I need wisdom. You know what He'll do? 
the Lord will respond. He will answer that prayer and he will send the Holy Spirit to fill you in on the bigger picture and to tell you what you need to know to get you one step further down the road. The good thing, right, that you need is the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Now, with that, God might grant you the request that you're making. It may be one of those situations where it falls right in line with the will of God and the Father is happy to, to uh, provide that for you and put a smile on your face. And, and praise God, He is merciful and very kind. Very, very, he has great loving kindness, the Bible says. Don't we buy gifts for our children, right, just to make them smile sometimes? Doesn't the Father just sometimes bless us out of nowhere? Seemingly undeserved, well, not seemingly, undeserved. <laughs> the promise that we have from this passage is not that God will give us everything we want or ask for, but He'll give us what we need. And that often comes with the Holy Spirit. Now verse 12 is a very well-known verse. He says, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is what we often call the golden rule. The golden rule. Jesus says this, this proverb, this saying, it summarizes all the law and the prophets. So everything that you read about how a man should treat a man in the Old Testament, it all falls under this category. If you would apply this, to every social situation, and I say social, every relationship, husband to wife, father to son, boss to worker, no matter what it is, just friend to friend, this is universally, uh, universally applicable. Now, I, I want to say that this, is, this golden rule is self-evident. It's built into us. It's innate. We, we know it by instinct because it's part of that moral programming that God uh, put into humanity. We understand this principle that if I want to be treated a certain way, it only makes sense that I treat people that way. So I'm, I don't think it requires a lot of explanation. But I will say this, if you were to stop and actually think about this before you said something, before you did something, if you were to apply this, actively. It would make a massive difference. The trick is getting everybody to apply it at the same time, right? Because what happens is we make an effort to apply it and then somebody else doesn't uh, reciprocate and we get a bit frustrated and throw away the golden rule. But it, it earns its title, the golden rule. It's, it's quite valuable. Now verse 13, Jesus says, enter ye in at the straight gate. Now the word straight, notice it, it's spelled a little differently than the way we often find the word straight. S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. That is straight as, I think in Afrikaans, yellow say, rechet. Straight, oh, is that, is that rechet? I don't have any Afrikaners in the room to tell me if my Afrikaans is bad or not. Somebody type it into the comment section if I have that wrong, but rechet, it's straightforward, I think. But that is straight as in like a straight line. This straight, without the GH in it, uh, this means narrow. Straight as in narrow. So, like Paul said, I am in a straight betwixt two. I'm, I'm in a narrow spot. I don't have much wiggle room here. Enter ye in at the straight gate, the narrow gate. 
And then Jesus says, For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Now, the way I've often... Rachet is correct. Oh, good to know. Okay. The way I've often heard verse 13, and the way I've preached it in the past, I've, not until today did this jump off the page at me. Wide is the gate, singular. Broad is the way, singular, that leads to destruction. I've always thought of it like this. There's one path that leads to God, and that, that way is Jesus, right? But then there are many ways and many paths that will lead to destruction. Jesus, however, says there's two ways. One right, one wrong. There's one very broad way. Sorry, I didn't mean to reference New York there, but there's one very broad way, and then there's one narrow way. Now, on that broad way, what is this broad gate, this, this broad way, this wide gate? I, I, I believe what Jesus is getting at. The, the, the narrow gate is doing it God's way. The broad gate is to reject what God reveals. That Now, there are a lot of ways to arrive at that gate, at that way. Maybe we can think of it as a lot of little side streets that lead to this major highway that ends up in hell. But what, whatever, whatever the false teaching is, whatever the philosophy is, whatever... Whatever it takes to confuse the man, to get him to reject what God has said. There, and I, I, what comes to mind when I was young, I was raised as a Catholic. I was taught that if you're not Catholic, you go to hell. And I was taught that if you talk to anybody from another religion about religion, you're sinning. Well, see, that puts, me, that puts me on this broad path because now when somebody else comes in and says, yes, but the Bible says, I'm going to say, no, 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 but you're, but you're not Catholic, so you can't be right. Well, you see, there's one thing that I'm doing wrong. I'm saying I'm rejecting God's truth. What this guy tells me about the Bible, no, no, that can't be right. You're not Catholic. Now, you get a Muslim. He's raised, you know, in Pakistan or whatever, Afghanistan, and somebody comes to him and says, the Bible says, he says, no, 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 no. No. Prophet Muhammad said, and then he rejects God's truth based on what he was taught. He was taught that the Quran is the only truth, that it's, it's the true word of God, and that the Bible's been corrupted. What's, what, what is the sin he's committing? Rejecting God's truth. Rejecting God's revelation. So I think there, that one wide gate, that broad way, if you want to give it one term, it is rejecting what God reveals. Now, obviously, the fact that God sent His Son to die for our sins, accepting Jesus Christ is part of what God reveals. The devil has many ways to confuse somebody so that they do not accept what God says. There's only one way that leads to life. Find what God said, believe it, accept it, walk on that path. Verse 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Let me ask you, in your, in your circle of life, how many of the people in your sphere 
of, you know, social uh, interaction, how many of them are Bible-believing Christians? I mean, heart and soul, they thoroughly believe the Bible. You look around in society, there's not a lot of that, right? Even you go to most churches, you can ask a lot of pastors, what do you believe about the Bible? Eh, it has mistakes and The rejection of God's truth, that's a wide gate. A lot of people fit into that category. They might get to that category in a Muslim way, in a Catholic way, in some other way, an atheist way, whatever it is. But when you look around for people that are soft-hearted enough to say, God said it, I believe it. There's not too many of them. Now, <clears throat> might I point out the ratio here? Many are on the path to destruction. Few are on the path that leads to life. I, th I think, you know, there's, there's a teaching amongst Reformed theology that the world is going to get better and better because Christians are going to preach the gospel everywhere and Christianize the world and eventually everybody ends up right with God and then Jesus comes back and says, I don't know how that fits with this idea of many being on the path to destruction. Jesus said only a few find the path to life. What well, really makes you appreciative of the fact that the Lord took time to find you, right? But then, I, let me show you a verse in Daniel 7. I, I just want to give you an idea on the ratio. Daniel 7 and verse 10. Daniel 7 and verse 10. Now, this is a prophetic verse. deals with the Lord coming back and then final judgment and so forth. But forgive me if I don't discuss the entire context. I just want to show you the ratio. Verse 10, Daniel 7 and 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. A thousand thousands. What is that? A thousand thousands is a million. A thousand times a thousand. Right? So, thousand thousands. So, if you lined up a thousand thousands next to each other, you'd end up with a million. Then he says, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And it says the judgment was set and the books were opened. So when we have this prophetic description of judgment, you have a million people behind the throne ministering unto the Ancient of Days, ministering unto the Lord, and then there are a hundred million people standing before him awaiting judgment. And of course, it's not going to go well if they're on that side of the judgment. Notice the ratio. A hundred to one. A hundred to one. One million compared to a hundred million. I, I'm not trying to pretend that Daniel 7 and verse 10 is an exact measurement of how many lost and how many saved people there are in the world. But I do find it interesting that there... The ratio of 100 to 1, it depends on where you live, right? There are some places where you wouldn't even find that good of a ratio. 1%. It's a scary thought. We have a lot of work to do to get the gospel to as many as we can and give them a chance at least to switch paths, to get off of that broad way of thinking that I'll believe anything except what God says. Got to tell them. Verse 15. 
He says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, ravening wolves. To be ravenous, you tear into it with this zeal. You're merciless in, in, in how you rip it apart. These false prophets, notice, they don't show up as wolves. They are a That man is a wolf, but he comes in sheep's clothing. So he's going to put on a Christian exterior. He's going to act or try to act and talk and appear as all the other sheep. Now this is very sly. This is very subtle. He tries to get in there and he, he gets in with flattering words, great swelling words. Man, it sounds right. Sounds good. And he's just trying to get you hooked. He comes in with the sheep's clothing. So he plays the part well. Jesus is going to tell us how to examine this man. But let me say this. Satan's playground is a church that doesn't take the Bible seriously. That's where Satan loves to do most of his work. I, I show this verse in discipleship, but it's worth mentioning now. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, or, uh, 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul's talking about false preachers spoiling this church. And, and messing it up. He says in verse 13, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Keep that in mind. Apostles of Christ. We're going to see it again in a moment. And no marvel, he says, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. The devil loves to appear as something good. Verse 15, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. They walk around, they carry a Bible, they speak Christianese. And a person who does not have a, a decent grip on their sword, they're not going to know how to deal with this wolf when he shows up. Uh, you can take your Bible, come to Second Peter I'm going to ask you to, we're going to look at Matthew 7 again, but 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read several verses from that chapter just now. In Matthew 7, 2 Peter 2, we'll be there in just a moment, but Matthew 7 and verse 16 says, Ye shall know them by their fruits. So, with a false prophet, you, you can't, you, we can judge them by what they say, but you have to go a little deeper than that. Because they might say some things that sound awfully close to being right. You have to dig a little deeper. You have to be patient. You have to, um, somebody comes in, you're not sure, give it a little time. See, see if it pans out. See if it checks out. Fruit doesn't grow overnight. He says, ye shall know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, verse 16, Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? No. No, that, th those fruits don't come from those places. Verse 17, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now, often these verses are used when we talk about people in general. And, and I must say, the principle of it, it applies to anybody making a religious profession, right? 
We don't, you might say the right thing, but let me look at your life as evidence of what you've said. You know? So this is, I want to say universally applicable to everybody, but especially when you're dealing with a false prophet. Because he might know how to word it in such a way. He might be able to quote a lot of scripture. Right? Matthew 4. Didn't the devil do that? Uh, Matthew 7 verse 19. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So this ties back into what we studied a while back. In Matthew 3, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, John the Baptist preached to them and said they were going to be cut down and cast into the fire. So we're dealing here with somebody who's who is a religious hypocrite, right? We're not dealing with somebody that made a profession and didn't have all the fruit that we would expect and then they lost salvation. It's not like that. A false prophet is somebody just putting on a false exterior and there's no real fruit. Now let me show you in 2 Peter 2. I want to read several verses here. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 2, And many shall follow their pernicious ways, their dangerous ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Verse 3, And through covetousness, shall they with feigned words... See, it sounds... Feigned is fake. If it's fake, it looks good, but it's, it's real. It's, it's not real. It's hollow, shallow. It says, And with feigned words make merchandise of you. Why do they... Why are they preaching to you? Not to actually help you. They want you to come to their side so they have a bigger following, so they get more money, they get more fame. Right? We, we've looked at this in Galatians. That was their... Motive. Verse 3, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. So God going to put a stop to it when he comes back. Second uh, Peter, just jump ahead a little bit in that chapter. Chapter 2, verse 14. Look at the way that these false prophets actually lived. Having eyes full of adultery. Now, at the end of verse 13, they're at the church bry. Look at the end of verse 13. While they feast with you. So they, they showed up. In the beginning of church history, the, the Christians would often have a, a feast of charity, love feast, you might hear it called that sometimes. And it's just what we know as a church bride. Everybody gets together, the whole church and fellowships. These false prophets would show up. But they're, they're there checking out the girls in the church, having eyes full of adultery, verse 14, and that cannot cease from sin. You see the fruit beguiling unstable souls, tricking people that aren't well-grounded. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. So they're ruining families. By messing up mom and dad, they're also messing up the children. Verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam is known for following the money. He says that's what these guys are doing. Verse 16, But was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. Which is an outstanding line for, to sum up what happened back in Numbers chapter 22. 
Verse 17, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried about with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, what are they going to do? They're going to puff you up and make you think great things about yourself. They are life coaches. They are spiritual cheerleaders, right? They allure, it says, through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in air. So they go after people who are trying to get their lives right. They've escaped from those who live in air. They've, they've, they're trying to turn over the, the leaf, that kind of thing, a new leaf. They go after them and they start to tell them, hey, I'll tell you how to have your best life now. I'll tell you a way that you can live and get everything you want. And they make these flashy promises and it sounds so good. And if you just claim it in Jesus' name, if you ask, you shall be given. All you have to do is just sow the seed of, of so many dollars and so many rands and you're going to... And they start preaching all this wonderful sounding stuff it has nothing to do with the truth. And they do it in Jesus' name. Come back to Matthew 7 and you'll see it. You'll see it just, just now. Um, he says in verse 20, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. By their fruits, now notice, ye shall know them. God knows them from a different angle. God knows their heart. God doesn't need to see the fruit in order to know if a person's saved. We look at the fruit, and this helps us determine whether or not he is who he says he is. Now, for a false prophet, right, he has a lot of converts. That's, that's his fruit. What is the product of his ministry? Look at Matthew 23 real quick. Let me, let me show you about these, these converts. You look at his fruit. You look at what his ministry is producing. Matthew 23, verse 15. And the code for this evening's lesson, those of you that are doing the degree, Romans 16, verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Watch this. For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, one convert. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. So the scribes and Pharisees, they would go out and do what looks like evangelism. But of course, they're preaching their, their traditions and so forth. And people would convert, say, okay, we'll, we'll join your club. We'll be one of you. And that person, what they're adopting is simply a new religious exterior, and they're now twice the child of hell. They were already a horrible sinner, and now they've just covered themselves with this religious exterior. They are one step farther from the truth. It would have been better to leave that fake exterior, and then they could at least deal with the real problem. But come back to Matthew 7 and verse number 21. So that's the, the fruit of a false prophet. He creates a people that uh, are self-centered. People that will use God to get what they want. Now you look around at false... It, at so many of these megachurches, not every megachurch is this way, but a lot of them are. People pile into there because they believe, I'll get what I want. 
by going and listening to this man. He'll tell me how to get what I want. And they see God as this glorified ATM in the sky. I actually had a preacher from the location here send me a text message one time and ask me, why am I telling people uh, not to go to certain churches? And, and I can't remember exactly. There was one doctrine that he mentioned. Why am I preaching against that? And I said, in the process of responding, I said, God is not an ATM. And he said, but why not? He honestly thought that that's the proper view of God. Well, the fruit of that, people that sit under such preaching and believe that you can just put on a show and be hollow inside, you're going to produce an, a, a very vain, selfish, petty crowd. All right, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And this verse I've heard many times, people use this to, they think, counteract Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then they say, yeah, but see here, you can't just say Lord, Lord. Right, you cannot just repeat the words Lord, Lord. You cannot only make a profession and not actually be genuine about that decision. The What Jesus is saying, these hypocrites are not going to make it. Even though they talk about the Lord, that's not enough. What is the will of my Father? That's what he says here. What is they, they have to do the will of my Father. What is the will of the Father? John 4, verse 23 and 24. Jesus said, The Father seeks true worshipers. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So when you come to God... Now, remember, Matthew 7 is before the cross... So obviously we're not going to read about uh, a, a Romans 10.13 type of doctrine here. But even now, when somebody approaches God and says, I, I want to make things right, then the Holy Spirit will come and convict that person of their sin and show them their need for a Savior and give them the gospel. And if that person is truly going to be saved, they have to be genuine. It cannot just be saying the right words and not actually mean it from the heart. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Now, look at this crowd. Tell me, you, you guys tell me. I haven't seen any comments come through in a while, so I'm assuming that that part of the video isn't working anymore. But if it is, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to hear your response to this. Tell me where you see this crowd today. Where, where do we find a crowd that is prophesying, casting out devils, and claiming to do many wonderful works, and they're doing it in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name? Jesus, the, he has nailed the charismatic look of Christianity in verse 22. I mean, that's, it's very hard to get around it, right? Now, now notice, if you take this along with verse number 6, you're not supposed to compromise with false preachers. And that, that is why I try to make a clear distinction between what goes on in other places and what goes on in our church. Guys, casting out devils, preaching in Jesus' name, prophesying, doing miracles, is it wrong? Well, no, the apostles did that stuff. But, but, 
you have a crew here. They were also doing those things. And, or Jesus is prophesying that they will do these things. But their motive is wrong. It's not what they're doing that's wrong. It's their motive is wrong. This crowd that Jesus is rebuking here and, and warning against, they are doing these things to get glory. They're doing these things to become famous and wealthy and so forth. You even read it in, in the book of Acts. You read about a group of Jews that were moving about, casting out devils, and they were doing it in, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preacheth. So they were using the name to achieve a certain end, but they didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. In verse 23, notice how this ties in. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So the problem is, these people never had a personal relationship with the Lord. They used Jesus' name. And you say, but, but how did they cast out devils? How did they do miracles? The devil is able to do miracles, right? The Bible says that in the end times, I get this verse. This verse has been quoted to me so many times in the last week. In Matthew 24, verse 22, and except those days should be shortened, uh, that's not the verse, one, verse 24, Matthew 24, 24, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. The miracles look the same as, as those that the apostles did. So much so that even the elect would look at it and say, ah, don't... The people have been quoting this verse to me saying that uh, with the, the um, vaccine and the mark that might be coming out, it's definitely the mark of the beast and we shouldn't be deceived because they're trying to sneak it in a vaccine. <laughs> Guys, the deception that the devil will, will pull off is to do wonderful works and make it sound and look as if it is a, a work of God when it's not. The only way you can tell the difference is to have a Bible on hand and check out. You, you take what that guy's preaching. You take what he's saying and doing. You look at the fruit of his ministry. You judge the, the you look at the whole thing. And then you can get it right. All right, so back in Matthew 7, we're going to finish up the chapter. Verse 24, on down to the end. This is a thought we've looked at several times, so I don't need to spend a long time explaining it. And it's also pretty self-evident. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Now notice the, this, this man, this wise man, he has to hear the word and do it. He cannot simply sit there and hear it and think that he's done enough. He has to have the attitude of applying what he's heard. So let me just ask you quickly, we've studied Matthew 5. We looked at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, the poor in spirit, the, uh, the, those that mourn. Have you tried to apply those things? Have you tried to, Matthew 6, stop worrying and trust God more? Have, have you worked at that? Verse 25, let's, let's move on. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. So problems, life is going to happen. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. So in order to prevent you from falling, you have the attitude of, I'm going to do what Jesus said. That prevents falling. It doesn't prevent problems. 
It prevents you from quitting when problems start. Verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not. Notice, this foolish man he's about to describe heard what Jesus said. This guy goes to church. He hears the Bible preached. It says, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. Now, a house built on sand, as long as nothing moves, you're fine. Right? Not a breath of wind. No one else can walk by. Everything has to stay exactly perfect. You know, there are a lot of people, their, their spiritual life, because it's not based on the Word of God, because they don't have that attitude of, I'm going to do whatever the Bible tells me to do. Everything's fine. It looks right as long as nothing else is going wrong in their life. As soon as one thing distracts them, one problem comes in, you don't see them anymore. You've got to have that attitude. I will hear it. I will do it. It's not enough to just believe the Bible. You've, you've got to be willing to do it. Verse 27, The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. Notice in both stories, both cases, same problems. Wise and foolish, the same problem. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. What happens to the fool happens to the wise. All is vanity under the sun. When it comes to just life being, not being fair, that's life. How do you prevent the fall? You, you, you have that right attitude. He says in verse 27, at the end of, verse, at the end of the verse, it, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. Why, why is that a greater fall? Why is it a great fall? Because he built a house. You go through all that effort to build this house, to build this life, you think, man, I've achieved something, and then whoosh, it crumbles. You actually thought, I'm on the right path, and you weren't. You weren't. Your life was based on something else, but not the Word of God in doing it. Verse 28, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. Now, why were they so amazed at this sermon? Well, there's a lot of reasons to be amazed at it, but here's the one they gave. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. What the scribes were known to do is they would endlessly quote other people. They would speak on, on, from someone else's authority. So-and-so said, Dr. So-and-so said, this guy said, this apologist said. And they would never come right out and say, God said here's the way it is. They would not be straight and clear. They would offer all these different opinions from all these other people and then almost leave it to the crowd. You pick. They would bounce around ideas, but no one was willing to say, this is the truth. Jesus, on the other hand, when he stepped up, he said, you've heard them of old time. They said this, but I say unto you. Jesus did not need to refer to any other doctor or lawyer or scribe or rabbi. He just said, here's the way it is. Now, I'm not against quoting somebody else. The Apostle Paul quoted other people. Peter quoted Paul. Right? That, that's not wrong. Or, uh, yeah, Peter mentioned Paul's writings. Um, Paul quoted Luke. There's, there's nothing wrong with 
quoting other people. But in order for your preaching to have authority, to simply say the Bible says, every, all the opinions of man, they are there's thousands of different opinions of what they think right is. But at the end of the day, we have one final authority. One authority. The Bible says it. That's it. That's it. The, the saying that often is, is circulated with this, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's not the case. The Bible says it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. The Bible is the final authority. So Jesus, he spake as one having authority. If you want to speak with authority, you can't stand up and say, well, I say. You stand up and say, but God says. And we quote the words of God. All right. So we have come to the end of this lesson. Um, as I said, the chat section, I don't think it's working anymore. I'm sorry if you guys have written something in and I'm not seeing it. Please do not think that I'm ignoring you. Uh, but if you do have any questions about the lesson tonight, uh, feel free to email me or to reach me uh, on my phone. Feel free to ask. And we just to remind you, be sure to check out the Galatians exam on Google Drive. And Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Uh, we'll start in on the book of Colossians. I'll be teaching you that via live stream. So let's bow our heads and let's pray and we'll close the lesson. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open the Word of God tonight. And Lord, we, we want to do what you've said. Lord, I, I, I believe that's, that might be the foundational lesson that we take from this chapter, to do what you said. Lord, not to put on a show, not to just be seen of men, Lord, we want to apply it properly. We know that you are a good Father and that you will provide for us the things that we need. Show us, Lord. Please continue to be patient with us. You, we, we don't know how to pray like we should. Thank you for being so long-suffering. Lord, please continue to help us grow and become more like you. And I pray that you'd uh, gather us again tomorrow so we can continue to study from your word. Father, thank you for this privilege tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, thanks for tuning in, and we'll, Lord willing, you'll see me tomorrow night.